to the Talking Leaves podcast. I'm your host, Miss Kyra, and we are back. Back again. Yeah, I had to do it. Moving on. We are back for episode 12 of our mini-series on Homer's The Odyssey. And, you know, I've wondered whenever I've read this text, did Odysseus come first, or did the Odyssey? Because you need to only look at the spelling and see they are nearly the same. There are literally two letter differences. It's pretty much a chicken-in-the-egg situation here. If anyone has any theories, I'd love to hear them. In this episode, we're going to talk about, and I know I've said this before, perhaps my favorite book of the Odyssey. And it isn't my favorite because it shows how awesome Odysseus is. No, it's my favorite because it shows two bad butt monsters? Monsters who just so happen to be female. Wait, we also see the sirens in this book, so maybe it's three. If you count the group of sirens as singular, what is the collective noun for sirens? It isn't heard. Would it be like crows and be, there's a murder of sirens? Hmm, I think it should have something to do with their voices because, you know, sirens. In Greek mythology, the sirens are birds with women's heads. So really interesting depiction. So their song is what lures sailors and often whole ships to their death by crashing upon the rocks. So then what would you call a group of sirens? I'll have to think about it. By the end of the episode, I'm sure I'll come up with something. See, there's just too much good stuff in this book that the intro is still going. I promise we'll jump in soon. In this book, and in this episode, we'll see the Sirens, Scylla, and Charybdis all trying to drag our boy Odysseus down. But as we already know the ending of our tale, he won't be killed by any of these femme fatales. Only a few of his men will be. Without further ado, let's get into it. In our last episode, we followed Odysseus to the underworld. After encountering spirits of friends, frenemies, family, and others, Odysseus scurried back to his ship and he and his men traveled back to Circe's island for more hospitality, advice, and free food. And as our book says, while the men slept, Circe takes Odysseus aside to hear about the underworld and to offer advice. Again, I will assert that Circe, although depicted largely as a villain, is a rather helpful gal. Like Calypso, who, remember, happens later on in this chronologically out-of-sorts tale. Circe's advice comes to Odysseus, and to us, on page 1230. Listen with care to this now, and a god will arm your mind. Hmm, interesting. Square in your ship's path are sirens, crying beauty to bewitch men coasting by. Woe to the innocent who hears that sound. He will not see his lady nor his children in joy crowding about him, home from sea. The sirens will sing his mind away on their sweet meadow lolling. There are bones of dead men rotting in a pile beside them, and flayed skin shrivel around the spot. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That is gruesome. Although romanticized in some tales, sirens, according to this myth, are clearly horrible creatures who seek to lure the innocent who hears their song. They bewitch men and sailors who travel near them, and they sing his mind away on their sweet lulling, on their sweet song. Again, this idea of turning men's mind from home creeps up. And ultimately, what goes unsaid here, these men, 
drowned because they're so bewitched by the song the sirens sing. And then the sirens just leave their bones right next to them where they hang out on their island from which they sing from. Kind of like a dragon hangs out with their treasure. The sirens are laying about with the bones of the dead and they clearly don't mind the smell of shriveled man flesh. Disgusting. Circe tells him how to avoid becoming a pile of bones. Steer wide, keep well to seaward. Plug your oarsman ear with beeswax, kneaded soft. None of the rest should hear that song. But if you wish to listen, let the men tie you in the lugger, hand and foot, back to the mast, lashed to the mast. So you may hear those harpies thrilling voices, shout as you will, begging to be untied. Your crew must only twist more line around you and keep their stroke up till the singers fade. She says, no one should hear this sound, but Odysseus, he sure can. And she tells him how to manage it. Plug all your men's ears with beeswax so they can't hear, and then they should tie you to the mast, the giant pole that holds up the sails in the middle-ish part of the ship, so you can hear those harpies' thrilling voices. Even if you beg your men, like you undoubtedly will, to let you go so you can join the sirens, your men will ignore you and only tie you further against this pole until the song and the singers fade. Another way Odysseus becomes a hero and the stuff of legends. He is the only man, at least that I know of, to hear the sirens sing without dying. Now, as usual, I can't leave it here. We have to talk about one of my favorite poems that connects to this. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, oh geez, poetry? Calm down, friends. It is by Margaret Atwood, the author of many books, including The Handmaid's Tale and it offers insight into the mind of a siren, and it's pretty spectacular. This is a song everyone would like to learn, the song that is irresistible, the song that forces men to leap overboard in squadrons even though they see the beached skulls, the song nobody knows because anybody who has heard it is dead and the others can't remember. Shall I tell you the secret, and if I do, will you get me out of this bird suit? I don't enjoy it here squatting on this island, looking picturesque and mythical with these two feathery maniacs. I don't enjoy singing this trio, fatal and valuable. I will tell you the secret to you, to you, only to you. Come closer. The song is a cry for help. Help me. Only you, only you can. You are unique at last. Alas, it is a boring song, but it works every time. Through this poem, we get a different perspective on the sirens. They seem rather bored with the whole thing, or at least this one of the three main sirens does. They seem stuck in this perpetual cycle, stuck in a bird suit, no less, fulfilling their rather predictable role in myth. Beautiful women luring men to their death, the typical seductress who is villainized. And I think part of the reason I like this so much is there is some tongue-in-cheek humor with the lines, come closer, the song is a cry for help, help me, only you, only you can. You are unique at last. This false cry for help is supposedly the song that all men who pass by hear. They want to help these victims, these beautiful women who are looking for a savior. Again, playing on the stereotypical role of men in myths and stories, the savior, the white knight, the prince or the king who swoops in and saves them. They prey on the men who want to be heroes. For me, this poem makes the story a little bit more a little bit better. It gives another story, another perspective on the sirens that the storyteller as an author at this time period, 8th century BCE, didn't offer. 
I mean, there was a little bit of commentary in Book 5 from Calypso about the double standard of the Greek gods, but that was cut out of our version, and out of a lot of versions. Hopefully, you enjoyed this addition to the Tale of the Sirens. Let's continue with Circe's advice. What then? One of two courses you may take, and you yourself must weigh them. I shall not plan the whole action for you now, but only tell you of both. Ahead are beetling rocks, and dark blue glancing amphitrite, surging roars around them. Prowling rocks are drifters. The gods in bliss have named them, named them well. Not even birds can pass them by. In this bit, Circe tells Odysseus of two potential paths forward to reach his ultimate destination of home, of Ithaca. She won't tell him which to choose. She will just describe them both and he'll have to decide. This is a bit funny because even though she says this, that she won't help him choose, the descriptions clearly say, certain death is one way, impossible death, but most likely you'll survive is the other way. So is it really a choice? Hmm. In this first option that was just described, Amphitrite, which is actually the name of Poseidon's wife, the goddess of the sea, here is not used to indicate her name. Instead, it's used as another word for the sea itself. Here, the sea, Amphitrite, hides rocks or drifters which move to crash into you, which not even birds can pass by without dying. So clearly, a ship won't survive deadly, moving rocks hidden beneath the surging sea. On to option two. A second course lies between headlands. One is a sharp mountain piercing the sky with storm clad round the peak, dissolving never, not in the brightest summer, to show heaven's azure there, nor in the fall. No man can scale it, nor so much as land there, not with twenty feet and hands. So sheer the cliffs are, as of polished stone. Midway that height, a cavern full of mist opens. But that is the den of Scylla, where she yaps abominably, a newborn whelp's cry, though she is huge and monstrous. God or man, no one can look on her in joy. Her legs, and there are twelve, are like tentacles, unjointed, and upon her serpent necks are born six heads like nightmares of ferocity, with triple serried rows of fangs and deep gullets of black death. Half her length she sways her heads in air, outside her horrid cleft, hunting the sea, and no ship's company can claim to have passed her without loss and grief. She takes from every ship one man for every gullet. In the second option, they need to pass through a strait, which we defined last episode, as essentially a tiny river of the sea that is surrounded by tall cliffs or tall pieces of land on either side. And on one of these cliffs is a cave, a cave shrouded and surrounded in mist that not even the full summer sun can break. And in that mist, hidden in that cave, is Scylla, an ugly woman monster who we learned about in book 10 and episode 10 of our podcast. This lovely sea nymph is now a horrendous and quite ugly, apparently, monster with 12 octopus-like legs and six heads like nightmares of ferocity with triple layers of fangs and huge mouths of black death. But passing by her, people survive, but at least six will die, one for each of her mouths. And that isn't all for the second option. <laughs> oh no. If you try to skirt away from that side of the strait, if you try to avoid Scylla, you might think yourself safer, better off, but no. There you would meet certain death by Charybdis, and not even the god who makes the earth tremble, aka the god of the sea, aka Poseidon, who even if he liked you, apparently could not save you, 
The opposite point seems more a tongue of land you touch with a good bowshot at the narrows. A great wild fig, a shaggy mass of leaves grows on it, and Charybdis lurks below to swallow down the great sea tide. Three times from dawn to dusk she spoos it up, then sucks it down again three times. A whirling maelstrom. If you come upon her, then the god who makes the earth tremble could not save you. Nope, that's definitely not going to happen. Because three times a day, between dusk and dawn, this whirlpool of like tornado underneath the water sucks everything down and not even Poseidon, the god of the sea, could save you from this monster. So really, the only way forward is to knowingly pass close to Scylla's cave, let her eat six of his men in order to have any hope of making it through and making it home with at least a few men, 39-ish at this point, alive. Of course, Odysseus doesn't just say, okay, sounds swell. He asks, how can I survive Charybdis and fight off Scylla? How can I make sure she doesn't eat my men? He looks for a way through without losing any more men. Quite honorable of him, but Circe breaks it to him. Must you have battle in your heart forever, the bloody toil of combat? Old contender, Will you not yield to the immortal gods? That nightmare cannot die, being eternal evil itself. Horror and pain and chaos. There is no fighting her. No power can fight her. All that avails is flight. In other words, no amount of fighting can stop Scylla. Six men must die. There's absolutely no point in fighting. And we hear for the first time the epithet for Odysseus, old contender. Somebody finally acknowledges that Odysseus is getting up there in his years. He needs to just let the gods do as they will so he can make it home before he dies, as Circe implies. And she tells him, if you try and fight her, Scylla won't just take six men. She'll have enough time to take six more. So it is better just to pass her as fast as you can. She also tells him, once you've passed them, give a wide berth, give a lot of space to Helios's island to his cattle particularly. Otherwise, Circe says, I see destruction for ship and crew. A second warning about this, and yet we know what happens. Finally, Circe warns him, rough years then lie between you and your homecoming, alone and old, the one survivor, all companions lost. said, Odysseus sleeps, and he and his men set sail the next morning. As our text tells us, Odysseus decides to tell the men only of Circe's warning about the sirens, whom they will soon encounter. He is fairly sure that they can survive this peril if he keeps up their spirits. Suddenly, the wind stops. Odysseus and his men pause. There's no more wind. A trap of the sirens, perhaps? And he passes out lumps of beeswax for his men to put in their ears so they cannot hear the siren song. They tie him to the mast and they start to row. And two sirens, seeing their ship, start to sing. The lovely voices in ardor appealing over the water made me crave to listen. And I tried to say, untie me, to the crew, jerking my brows. But they bent steady to the oars. Then Paramedes got to his feet, he and Eurylochus, and passed more line about to hold me still. So all rode on until the sirens dropped under the sea rim and their singing dwindled away.
His faithful company, as he calls them, allows him a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to hear the sirens while they keep him safe. And scarcely had they removed the beeswax from their ears and released Odysseus that he looks about and sees smoke and white water with sounds of waves and tumult, a sound that men heard, and it terrified them. They were so terrified, in fact, that they dropped their oars and the ship loses its way, shifting closer and closer to this terrible monster. And Odysseus starts his pregame speech like any good coach, and he tries to put courage into them. Friends, have we never been in danger before this? More fearsome is it now than when the Cyclops penned us in his cave? What power he had! Did I not keep my nerve and use my wits to find a way out for us? Now I say, by hook or crook, this peril, too, shall be something that we remember. Heads up, lads. He goes on and says that they must listen to his orders as he gives them, and they must do whatever they can to keep going so they don't all drown. This speech invigorates the men, and they all spring into action and ready to row the boat onward towards Scylla. And Odysseus acknowledges that he couldn't say anything to his men. Otherwise, they would give up. They were tired. They'd battled so many times already, and while some of those trials were avoidable, they happened nonetheless, and they wore on the men. Ten years at Troy, the loss of life battling the Sisones, the Lotus Eaters, Polyphemus, Circe, they were tired. They couldn't take another battle, and so he led them in blindly. And all this time, in travail, sobbing, gaining on the current, we rode into the street, Scylla to part, and on our starboard beam, Charybdis, dire gorge of that salt sea tide. By heaven, when she vomited, all the sea was like a cauldron, seething over intense fire, when the mixture suddenly heaves and rises. The shot spume soared toward the landside heights and fell like rain, and when she swallowed the seawater down, we saw the funnel of the maelstrom. Heard the rock bellowing all around, and dark sand raged on the bottom far below. My men all blanched against the sudden gloom. Our eyes were fixed on that yawning mouth in fear of being devoured. Then Scylla made her strike, whisking six of my best men from the ship. I happened to glance aft at ship and oarsmen and caught sight of their arms and legs dangling high overhead. Voices came down to me in anguish, calling my name for the last time. That is truly horrifying. Distracted by the chaos and the whirlpool of death that is Charybdis, Odysseus and his men do not see Scylla strike. She just swoops in and takes six of his men, and much like the Cyclops Polyphemus, she chomps on them. She ate them as they streaked there in her den, in the dire grapple, reaching still for me, and deathly pity ran through me at that sight, far the worst I ever suffered, questing the passes of the strange sea. Powerless, Odysseus and his men row on. As our version of the text winds down, we learn that Odysseus tries to persuade his men to bypass Thrinacia, the island of the sun god Helios, but they insist on landing. Driven by hunger, they ignore Odysseus's warning not to feast on Helios's cattle. This disobedience angers the sun god, who threatens to shop shining if payment is not made for the loss of his cattle. 
To appease Helios, Zeus sends down a thunderbolt to sink Odysseus's ship. Odysseus alone survives. He eventually drifts to Ogea, the home of Calypso, who, we know, keeps him on her island for seven years. With this episode, Odysseus ends the telling of his tale to King Alcinous. We knew it would happen. Zeus told us in book one. And yet, it's still tragic. Odysseus cannot convince his men to bypass Helios' island. And after their battles with the Sirens, Scylla, and Charybdis, all on this day, after the loss of their friends over months and months, they're starving. And they feast on a god's herd. And they die. Odysseus alone survives, and he washes on Calypso's island, where he's forced to stay for seven years. With that, Odysseus finishes telling King Alcinous, remember whose island he washed up after he left Calypso's island, about his journey and battle-riddled past. Much as Justin Bieber says in his song, Odysseus is low, low, lonely. We've come to the end of our episode. We've seen Odysseus face the sirens, the bird women who either gleefully or boredly fulfill their role of luring sailors to their death with beguiling and bewitching song. And as promised, I have the collective noun for sirens. They are the serenade of sirens. After being serenaded by the serenade of sirens, Odysseus knowingly sentences some of his men to death by Scylla in order to provide hope for the rest of his men to return home at all. And whilst distracted by Charybdis, six men die. Lastly, we hear Odysseus tell of how he lost the rest of his men when they disobeyed his order not to eat Helios's cattle. From here, we journey with Odysseus to Ithaca, to a rather seemingly anticlimactic, but later on exciting, homecoming. Special thanks to these sources. Robert Fitzgerald's translation of the Odyssey, Poetry Foundation and Margaret Atwood for the poem Siren Song. 